Hi, welcome to the Tax Chick Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Doucette, a self-proclaimed foodie, spin class, and Pilates enthusiast, and a tax lawyer. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. Tax is complex, but it does not always have to be so complicated and shrouded in mystery. Join me and my guests as we unpack some serious tax topics and attempt to demystify the world of tax. So welcome everyone to the latest episode of the Tax Chick podcast. Today, my guest is a fellow tax chick, Sophie Vergie. Hi, Sophie. Welcome. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me. So Sophie is a tax associate with Bennett Jones in Calgary, and Sophie helps both private and public corporations manage their tax controversies and formulate litigation strategies. Sophie is is really cool because what she does is handle all aspects of the tax dispute resolution process. And so she provides both the written and the oral legal positions. She's appeared before Court of Queen's Bench, Tax Court of Canada, Federal Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, she's also been a part of negotiations with CRA and Department of Justice prior to judicial proceedings. And she provides advice on corporate audits. She works with her clients to help with the audit process. And she's also been engaged on a wide array of tax matters, including transfer pricing, international taxation, and corporate reorganizations. And Sophie is a regular writer and speaker on taxation matters. She's a member of the Canadian Bar Association, the Calgary Bar Association, Canadian Tax Foundation, Canadian Petroleum Tax Society, the Association of Women Lawyers, and Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. And she's fluent in English and French, but because I'm not, we're going to go with English today. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, if you insist. (laughs) So for further details on how to connect with Sophie, you can check out the show notes where I'll have all the latest info. So Sophie, I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I know we're relatively new friends, but I'm glad to I'm glad to have you as a part of this. Yeah, no, thank you. I um when I as I mentioned to you earlier in our preliminary conversation, I I saw that you were doing this and I got really excited also. I think it's a great initiative. Well, I think that maybe that's something you and I have in common as tax litigators is we both get excited about similar things. And I, I always love to connect with other tax litigators because it, it's like we speak the same language. Oh, of course. And there just aren't very many of us. So I, I likewise, I echo your thoughts on the excitement to meet a fellow tax litigator. And I think it'll be fun today to break down a little bit about what it means to be a tax litigator and some of the different Canadian tax processes that we help clients through. Because I find when I tell people I'm a tax litigator, I usually get a raised eyebrow and people don't quite mm-hmm. know what that is. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. It's it's a real mystery. So no, this is a great way to kind of um, sort of, you know, unpack a little bit of that mystery and just promote some accessibility into the tax system. Absolutely. And so I I know you might have listened to some of my episodes already. So you know that I ask all my guests the same two questions. And it has provoked some very interesting responses. Um, So I'm really excited to hear what you're going to say. So the first question is, what is the last podcast you listened to? You know, I am a steadfast listener of Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a very steady podcast. They, you know, sh- I don't know if you're familiar with that one in particular, but I am absolutely familiar with that one. Okay. It's great. You're not going to disappoint me at all. I oh, have okay, like perfect. Oprah and then I have Michelle Obama's new uh-huh. podcast, like on mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I switch back and forth. 
Okay. All right. So I've, I've obviously come to the right audience here, but, you know, I love, I love her approach to um, just the various topics. I mean, as you know, you get, you know, you get Deepak Chopra and you get Tina Turner and you have, you know, you've got Eckhart Tolle and you've got, you know, Layla Ali. So it's such a, it's such a mix of content, um, you know, from, sports to spiritual to academic to you know movies and so I, I just kind of like it it allows me to unwind a little bit and, and maybe learn a thing or two here and there so I quite I quite like that podcast well and it is nice sometimes to listen to a podcast of an established brand because I mean when you say Oprah like you know what you're getting when you mm-hmm. listen to Oprah and there's something mm-hmm. to be said for that especially when you're trying to unwind that's the thing and I, I do find Oprah's voice to be you know, almost unreasonably soothing. So uh, for what that's worth, you know, I could probably lull myself to sleep, you know, and with a, with a bedtime story with her voice. <laughs> well, and I'm actually surprised that Calm App, the Calm App has not gotten mm-hmm. Oprah to do a bedtime story yet. I mean, they got Harry Styles. I don't know why yeah. they didn't get Oprah. Yeah. Because no, I agree with you. Great, yeah, that's a great point. I I, ha- I actually am a, am a purchaser of the Calm App myself. And um, yeah, I agree with you entirely. Yeah, Craig and I are huge proponents of the Calm app. And at first I kind of laughed at him. And then I started listening to the bedtime stories and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I it's mm-hmm. the best way to fall asleep. I don't I don't like listening to the calm stuff during the day. Like if I'm feeling anxious and he puts the calm app on to calm me down, it makes me mad because I, <laughs> I I'm just choosing not to be calm in that moment. But bedtime stories, those are the best. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you totally. So the other question is, what is the emoji you use most often when texting? So, you know, I use the heart emoji the most. I mean, I have hearts flying all over the place in my conversations. I just, you know, I just, you know, I, I speak a lot with the people that I love the most over, over, you know, WhatsApp and text my parents, my sister, you know, some of my close friends, my boyfriend. So a lot of hearts. Um, so that's not, I mean, it's not terribly exciting, but I think it's not a bad, you know, not a bad way to spread some peace and love. And, and then this, I, I would say a close second is the little monkey. Cause I find him to be, you know, goofy and playful. And I think sometimes it reminds me to just, you know, not take myself too seriously. That is a very, very good point. What color heart do you use? Is it the red heart? It's or the always, yellow heart? The, it's like the dark red. I actually feel that the other colors um, don't, you know, don't elicit the same emotion in me at all. You know, I really don't like the other colors much. Well, and I always get worried that I don't understand the meaning behind the other colors <laughs> yes. and then I'll inappropriately use a heart and I will <laughs> insult somebody. And so I feel like if I use the red heart, I know what that means and I, I can do that confidently. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Staying within the parameters, the confines of the definitions. It's like flowers, you know, you don't know oh, you yeah. send the wrong color rose, you know, you know, who, yeah, knows? <laughs> who knows? I'm just not cultured enough. I'm not cultured enough to know the difference between those things. Maybe that should be another podcast episode. That's not really tax related, <laughs> but it's interesting. I need to find a florist and find out what flowers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I tune into that for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you and I have had a number of conversations about tax and accessibility of tax conversations. And I think one of the things we've identified is that it seems no matter how experienced that a business owner or a taxpayer might be, there's always that kind of initial feeling of panic when contacted by CRA. I mean, you receive that brown envelope in the mailbox if you're still getting stuff by mail or you see the Canada Revenue Agency email and your heart kind of skips a beat. 
And so we we both recognize that. And I think what's interesting is that our client base is different. I mean, you know, my client base is owner, manager businesses, a lot of farming families, a lot of solo entrepreneurs. But you're working with a very different group of clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're dealing um on, on our side, uh, dealing with a lot of um, large corps and public corporations. Um, so yeah, quite a quite a difference in size, but um, but quite a bit of transferability on the mechanics of how the CRA approaches um, initial requests and audits, and then um, you know similar processes. You you know as a tax dispute. Um, goes from an audit into an objection into a tax appeal. So a lot of transferability of information there for sure. Well, and and what I was kind of saying earlier is is a lot of people don't understand what it means to be a tax litigator. And I I don't think even when I was in law school, I understood that there was an aspect of civil litigation that that contemplated tax litigation. That wasn't really in my realm at the time. And so I mean, really what it means is that we're helping clients through all aspects of their interactions with Canada Revenue Agency. So right from that initial audit or request for information all the way through to the appeal process, whether that be Tax Court of Canada, Federal Court, Supreme Court of Canada, we're taking it all the way through. And unless you've kind of been all the way through that process, I think there is a bit of a mystery as to what the process is and and what to look out for and, and what what is expected during those various stages. And so we thought that we would have a bit of a conversation today about what happens sort of from that initial phone call or initial letter all the way through um, the appeals process. But I mean, you and I are pretty passionate about this and we're going to try to keep it to 45 minutes, but I don't know when I get talking about this, I get pretty excited. (laughs) Yeah, no, likewise. I mean, there's, um, there's a lot of information that I think, uh, that, that I think can be disseminated in a way that helps the general public to kind of field some of these, um, some of these requests and some of these letters, and then also just temper the emotion around it as well, as you mentioned. I mean, I think that initial um, state of panic or shock is, um, can, can really um, influence, you know, the way in which you, you handle some of these requests. And I think if there's some, if there's some transparency in, in the processes, then we can kind of temper that a little bit to make it a more, you know, a more seamless process. And I think what we were thinking of doing today was taking sort of three topics and breaking them down, maybe in an effort to, to keep the two of us on task and not let us get too excited about <laughs> one topic over another. So we were going to tackle uh, topic one being the audit. So how do audits start? What typically happens in an audit? And what is the scope of information that CRA can be entitled to ask for? And then topic number two being the notice of objection. So what is it? Um, how does the internal appeals process of CRA work? And then topic three being Tax Court of Canada, and and we're going to very briefly review the court jurisdiction and its processes, very briefly. So maybe what we'll do is we'll we'll dive right into topic number one, because I feel like it's the topic that most people are faced with more regularly. I mean, you're not always getting to the Tax Court of Canada stage, but a lot of people are fearful of the audit. Yeah, certainly, Amanda. Um, you know, I think the audit is one of the most critical steps in the tax controversy process. And I say that because it's an opportunity 
where you can really try as a taxpayer, you can really try and bring fence some of the issues that are coming up and get consensus with the CRA on how to deal with with certain issues so that they don't sort of crop up throughout the litigation process. I feel like sometimes the client doesn't fully grasp how critical it is that the information that is being presented at the audit stage is accurate and that there is a proper foundation being laid. Because as you had kind of indicated, oftentimes we can resolve a large portion of the issues at the audit stage by just having a free flow of information and and having consistent information being provided. Yes. And I, you know, I think, um, I think as a jumping off point, it might be helpful to the listeners to kind of talk um, a bit more broadly about um, what CRE is doing more generally and some of the powers they have, and then to kind of narrow in on some of the things that um, taxpayers should be mindful of in, in, a, in approaching an audit scenario. So I think, you know, when, when CRA approaches a taxpayer, oftentimes there's a reaction of not knowing what the rights and roles and responsibilities are of the CRA and then of the taxpayer likewise. And I think it's important to note that the CRA has um, embedded within the Income Tax Act has very broad powers to inspect and um, review documentation of taxpayers as long as it has to do with the administration of the Income Tax Act. So that's, you know, that's essentially the language used in the legislation itself. And, and, and as you can see, it's a very broad language. And so, you know, when the CRA comes in, it normally is because they have the right to do so. And that's a legislative right. I appreciate mm-hmm. you saying that because I think a lot of people start from the position of you don't have the right to get this information. And mm-hmm. yes, they probably do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, they do. You know, I mean, it, it's it's sort of a fortunate, unfortunate thing, I think. Um, and, the, and, and the thing is, is um, I think it's fortunate because better that the CRA come in and ask for certain information and try to fact find an information gatherer rather than kind of shooting from the hip and reassessing without even knowing the facts, you know, and that's kind of, that's kind of an extreme sort of scenario. But I think just um, in terms of taxpayers absorbing this type of activity by the CRA, I think um, it's, it, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's actually an opportunity for any taxpayer to say, you know, yeah, come on in, let me explain to you what it is that we do here and how we deal with the books and, and what we've done to come up with these numbers. And I think that that's actually, it's a it's a very powerful process. Well, and, and maybe we should mention a little bit about some of the changes that I, I know I've seen for sure in the last number of years and how someone gets chosen for audit. And sure. so, I mean, I think that, I think that if I was talking to someone five, six years ago, really the the audits were much more randomly generated. And I felt like there was a lot less, um, I don't know, specific things that CRA was looking for. We were kind of seeing more of these large projects that were popping up across the country. And so if you had a trust or if you were part of a partnership or if you were doing an, you know, an RCA arrangement, we were we were seeing that there were these large audits that were popping up. And so if you were one of those people, we could tell you you're probably going to get flagged at some point. But otherwise, sort of as the average taxpayer, it was it was a little harder to kind of predict where CRA was going. But with the influx of some of the new software that I understand that CRA mm-hmm. has implemented, now you've got this ability for them to run certain algorithms through a computer system to identify certain line items or certain things in people's returns that they want to target. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, that's exactly right, um, Amanda. I think um, the CRA process has kind of now embedded within it, um, you know, data analysis and predetermined criteria, predetermined criteria that kind of make their way through um, the filing system. And so there's sort of a range of things that can be picked up at any number of times. So in addition to certain projects and initiatives, so you've got, you know, you've got sort of projects and initiatives relating to um, point of sale systems, for example, or small business deductions, for example. But in, so in addition to those that continue, you've got these algorithms that are just pulling numbers out of all of the filings that occur every year. So the process is much more animated and there isn't so much of a blueprint anymore as to what will get picked up and what won't. Well, and I mean, I, I'm not psychic. I know you're not psychic, but I can, I can say with a fair bit of certainty that I believe 2021 is going to be filled with audits on the various government subsidies because of the pandemic. <laughs> well, oh, absolutely, for sure on that. And then just the regular audit activities as well, because they're going to have to come up with, with some kind of tax collected on, on that basis alone. So, um, you know, but so I think, you know, COVID or non-COVID landscape, you know, the CRA has been given a really big budget to operate. And, and so audits are not, you know, audits are not going to be a thing of the past, you know, they're going to increase steadily and the call. So say, let's take for argument's sake, um, a small business. So the small business will get a call from an auditor to say, to let them know that they've been flagged for an audit and to let them know that they're going to be um, launching the audit process. And so, um, at that stage, um, that phone call is normally followed up by a letter, just basically explaining those same elements of the audit. And um, at, at that stage, also, there's typically sort of a, 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 an introductory interview that's conducted. So um, the taxpayer will select a, a, a representative. So with a small business, of course, you know, as I as I sort of alluded to earlier, you know, there's there's a lot of times one person fulfilling many roles as you've probably experienced in your in your case you know what is your business um what does a typical day look like what are your typical um you know ars um ap's um different you know different line items on the on the financial statements just so that the auditor can understand okay if this is the kind of business we're in then this is what you could typically expect in terms of inputs and outputs and things like that and that's normally how an audit starts so as you can imagine, um, that initial interview is is quite critical in the process because it's a time for both parties to gauge um, the openness, um, the authenticity, the neutrality um, of of the other, and um, it's that cooperation that um, goes a long way for the CRA um, and and can be very very powerful when dealing with, you know, as I mentioned before, when ring fencing issues in an audit. So that actually is a great overview, Sophie, and it brings up a couple of thoughts um, as you were talking. So one of the thoughts is um, when you do get that initial call, I know what we're finding in Saskatchewan is that sometimes it's not being followed up by a letter. And so we're sort of informing our clients, just ask for a letter because there's there tends to be this initial moment of panic when you're on the phone. And also with all the scams now, people mm-hmm. don't often believe that they're actually being called by Canada Revenue Agency. Mm-hmm. So we will ask them to follow up with a letter. 
And the letter has some important information in it because it it will tell you exactly who they're auditing. And so sometimes if you're a business owner and if you have multiple business entities, well, they may not be they may not be auditing all of them. They may be auditing only one of them. And so it'll tell you which one they're auditing. And it'll also tell you what tax years that they're auditing. And that's really helpful as well. Because mm-hmm. of course we know that there's a certain period of time over which CRA does not have an automatic right to reassess you. Um, mm-hmm. If they're going to go past that time frame, they have to show certain things in order to be allowed to do that. So it's helpful to know how far back they're going. And then also, as you had said, that initial letter usually sets out, hey, we'd like to have an initial interview. And here's the stuff we'd like you to gather for that initial interview. And so it gives you a little bit of a heads up. The The initial interview is really important. And I'm currently, as we're recording this, I'm in the, the process of preparing for a tax court trial. And so this has been kind of on the back of my brain because I'm going back to the initial interview notes that were taken you know, now almost 10 years ago during the beginning of the audit for this tax court trial. And, you know, it's a lot of that really formed the foundation of what CRA understood the situation to be. And oftentimes clients don't understand the gravity of it at that moment. And so it's very important. It's not whether you're being honest or not, but it's very important to ensure that you're accurate. So I always say to clients, you know, if you don't know the answer, you need to say, I actually don't know. Can I go check? Or can you send me those questions in writing? And then I can respond back to you to make sure I'm doing it correctly. Because I find those offhands. Yeah, I think so. Or probably they're innocent, but sometimes they get taken as sort of gospel by CRA and they really start to form a narrative that's not correct. Well, and I think you, I think you touched on a on a very, very important point, which is um, the onus of proof in a tax court trial. So you fast forward from the audit, you fast forward sort of ten years um, to the tax court of Canada trial, and um, in the t- and and what a lot of people don't know is that in a tax court of Canada trial, um, the, the onus of proof is on the taxpayer. So it's on the taxpayer to disprove. Uh, the CRA's assumptions of fact, the basis of which um, are from the audit, oftentimes. And so I think to your point that uh, taxpayers often don't realize the gravitas of, of, of the story they're telling, the story they're painting for the CRA at the time that they're painting it, because A, a lot of people don't know that there is uh, the burden will be on them, and B, um, people aren't thinking, you know, years in advance. They're they're thinking really in that moment, and so I think that's a really, really critical piece of the audit is is it's a chance to tell a story um, that's accurate and and very tight and 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 lean in in certain circumstances. So yeah, to be very mindful when when audit is asking a question, there's no need to answer it right on the spot. There's I mean, just because a taxpayer doesn't know the answer doesn't mean that they're lying. You know, it just means that they need to go back and check their records or, or you know, seek seek advice from counsel or seek advice from their accountant or, or what have you. You know, there's no rush for a taxpayer to give an explanation right then and there. 
Well, and I think it's important for people to sort of to recognize as well that sometimes when the auditor comes in, they may not have any familiarity with your business or your business operation. And so they might be asking questions that to the taxpayers seem like bread and butter. Like, why are they asking me this? This is so commonplace. But, you know, if you have an auditor coming into a fertilizer operation, well, they probably don't know much about the fertilizer operation and how that works. And so it is an opportunity to kind of teach the auditor a bit about your business and about the trends that happen in your business to help them understand why you're doing things the way you are. Mm -hmm. And one of the struggles that I'm seeing lately is that we're having a lot less in-person audits. And and I I mean this even prior to to COVID, but we were seeing a lot more audits happen just by phone calls and by exchange of letters, which I think sometimes makes it more difficult because there's never really that opportunity for the auditor to actually come to the business, which for some people, they find that quite stressful. I actually find sometimes it's helpful because the the auditor can actually see this is a legitimate business. Here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Here's the people that work here. Here are the systems that they've put in place. And so there is a bit of an education sometimes in terms of helping to explain to your auditor the nature of your business as well and and why you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, when we you know, our advice to clients is always, um, you know, if you've got an auditor in your place of business, um, welcome them and take them around, give them a tour of your plant or, or whatever type of business you have. And, you know, allow them to start understanding, you know, the story, you know, and, and really allow them to start understanding what it is that you do and, and, and why you're, you know, why you're recording things in the way that you are. So I agree with you entirely on that. Well, and, and in terms of advice too, I'm, I'm thinking for when clients are being asked to respond to audit requests. So maybe we should talk a bit about that because you've you've correctly pointed out that usually there's this initial interview and it never really ends at the initial interview. Usually the initial interview results in either a letter with more questions or a follow-up interview, or the auditor may need to be on site for a couple of days to review minute books or to review, you know, do some general expense pulls. And so typically there's usually another set of queries that come out. And I know when our clients get those queries, we're usually kind of giving them the same type of big picture advice. And and typically what we're doing is we're saying, you know, are they asking for stuff within the audit period and for the taxpayer that they're auditing? And if not, let's make sure they're allowed to ask for what they're asking for. And then number two, um, is there any concerns regarding privilege? And I know that in today's conversation, we don't have time to go and do a deep dive into privilege. But, you know, are they asking for the contents of your invoices from your lawyer? Because <laughs> those are going to have descriptors on them, which which could be privileged. And if you release those, you may you may unwittingly um, say that you're not worried about privilege anymore. So we we talk about that. And then we also talk about making sure the taxpayer keeps a record of exactly what they provided to CRA in terms of documentation and how they provided it. And so now with that automatic electronic upload, it's a little bit easier because they can just print out the page of what they uploaded electronically. But if they're faxing to keep a copy of the fax, just so that you know five, six years down the road, we're not into an argument about well, the taxpayer refused to provide me something, but then we're saying, well, the taxpayer said they provided it and we get into a bit of a he said, she said. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, I think, when you're dealing with um, issues that span the course of, you know, a number of years, which unfortunately, 
you know, as you know, as you you're living as we speak, I, I don't know what year's an issue you're dealing with in your upcoming Tax Court of Canada trial, but I suspect it was some time ago. Um, you know, we're you know, the courts are backed up, the series backed up. So oftentimes, you, yes, you will be kind of circling back on something that occurred years in advance. So I would echo your thoughts on um, keeping records of what you're what you're giving um, any copies being taken by the CRA if they're on site, you keep records of that. And, um, you know, I think that there's there is also a distinction to be made when it comes to CRA requests for information. I, you know, as I said, the CRA has very broad powers um, and their their requests can come in in just the form of a letter um, as as the initiative, you know, through an audit initiative or they can come in the form of a requirement for information, which is actually um which is actually a section in the Income Tax Act and which is enforceable through um, a compliance order. And so oftentimes, at least in our experience, we, you, you know, you get audit asking for information. And if there's some kind of resistance or pushback or for whatever reason, the auditor is not getting the information that they need, then they can go ahead and issue a requirement for information um, which has typically has a timeline on it, and then failing that, they can go to the federal court to get a compliance order. So to force the to force the taxpayer to you know disclose the information they need, and of course, um, all of this, and as you've as you've correctly noted, is subject to privilege. And um, the question of privilege is is of course a very nuanced one. Uh, so the subject of a lot of litigation, definitely not something a taxpayer would seek to. Um, you know, fight all the way to federal court on, but certainly to be very, very mindful of privilege claims on any documentation is um, should be at the top of mind of any anybody who's dealing in an audit situation because you've got the risk of waiving privilege, of course, when you disclose information that's privileged. So something to just be mindful of and erring on the side of caution. I, I mean, we've got some very, you know, some very deeply rooted, you know, Supreme Court of Canada case law that acknowledges privilege as a substantive right. And so if there's anything that even might be privileged to withhold that information until you understand exactly the nature of the privilege would be always advisable. That That's excellent point. And I mean, the sort of difference between these types of letters is also a great thing to point out because I find sometimes that the clients do not actually realize the documentation that's been given to them. So if you if you do receive sort of a requirement to produce a requirement for information, it will literally say that at the top of the letter. So you'll know that's what you have versus an audit letter just says, hi, you've been selected for audit. Here's the stuff we'd like. So it's a much more relaxed letter mm-hmm. and the deadlines are more relaxed. So, so you will know that it's kind of elevated itself to a different level. And one of the questions that I get a lot is, well, you know, when do I, when do I hire a lawyer or when do I bring my accountant in? And I think Sophie, given the difference in our client bases, I'm sure our answers are slightly different here. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I'm guessing they are. Um, But I think it's, it's often a cost benefit analysis. um, Because if, if you're just an owner manager business, if there's really no, you know, major reorganizations or transactions that happen, but more of really a routine audit, 
you know, you might want to pick up the phone and call your accountant for an hour or call your lawyer for an hour just to kind of give them the lay of the land and have a general discussion. But whether, you know, I need to be sitting there with you for two days during an audit, probably not necessary. I can probably give you the tools you need to make sure that you're laying the proper foundation and responding accurately. But then for some of the much more larger entities, I'm guessing that the involvement of the lawyer is happening much sooner. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that that's, that's an accurate representation of what's happening. I, you know, with the, with the larger sort of public company taxpayers, um, it's very common to have counsel, legal counsel writing on, on the entity's behalf and, and kind of handling the audit on the entity's behalf. Now, the flip side to that is that these larger entities have um, in-house tax teams um, that handle a lot of their disputes as well. So it's not uncommon to have, you know, the point person being someone in their in-house tax team and then they're liaising with us. Um, I think on the smaller audits, you know, I think ideally as far as actually having counsel represent you in your submissions and in your audit, I, I, I think I also echo your thoughts. It's not nece- it's not particularly necessary but also, I think it can send the wrong message to CRA if you if if, if an audit letter comes in and you've got um, you know you've got legal counsel representing you right away. That can send the wrong message about what's going on in your operations. There's just a bit of an optics issue with CRA assume that you're guilty because you've just gotten a lawyer, or um, you know why is it that you can't conduct your initial interview? on your own. So now, of course, that's just more of a field test. There's, you know, that's just something that you could perhaps talk to as far as optics goes, but there's no sort of rooted analysis, um, you know, that that has to do with that type of thing. But that's kind of the concern when you get um, a lawyer representing you too early. Well, and I think that's the case for really any kind of legal issue, that if you're in sort of a squabble with another business owner over a sum of cash and you show up to a what's supposed to be a friendly meeting with your lawyer in tow, that kind of ups the ante there too. And so I think sometimes it's you just have to be careful about is it necessary to kind of bring in, you know, the big guns or to bring in the lawyer at the very front end? And and sometimes it's just not. And so just having that consulting call. I think is a great idea, Sophie, that it's just pick up the phone. This is going on. You know, what should I make sure I'm doing? And then we can provide you with some general parameters and be available on kind of a consulting basis if need be, but to help kind of guide you through the importance of the audit and making sure that accurate information is being provided. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, and that prevents too, um, you know, the panic call you know, some months later when you've been reassessed, you know, and, and then you're, you're, you know, you're sort of in the soup because you've, you know, the audit has been completed. And, and oftentimes um, if counsel hasn't been sought or it's been mishandled, then, um, you know, you're, you're one step further into the process and, and, you know, sometimes damage has been done at the time of the audit that you, you know, you can't really reverse, Um, And that can be very, very detrimental to a client, um, you know, as you as you endeavor to get through the tax dispute resolution process. Well, and that's kind of an interesting segue sort of towards the back end of the audit process, because we've talked a little bit here about, you know, you usually get the initial phone call, which is followed up by a letter. And usually there's an initial interview and then a bit of back and forth. And then ultimately that usually culminates in what 
I typically hear them call a proposal letter, um, which says, you know, we've now reviewed all your stuff and here's what we propose in terms of adjustments to those particular tax years. What do you think? Here's why we're proposing this. You have 30 days or 45 days to respond. Mm-hmm. And I find that's often the time when I get the phone call. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if I haven't gotten it by then, it's the, oh my goodness, why are they proposing this? And then we start discussing, well, what did what did you give them? And, and slowly it starts to become apparent why that's the conclusion that they came to. But there will be an opportunity typically to provide some type of a response um, to initial proposals that that CRA comes up with. Yeah, and and those proposal letters. So the CRA is required to um, to disseminate to the taxpayer their the the reasons and analysis behind the proposal and and the results of the audit. So that's what that's and that comes in the form of the proposal. Um, and you know, I think at that stage, you really need to do a bit of a you know a bit of a gut check because. Um, and and that's a bit of an intuition thing, which becomes a bit nebulous, nebulous, of course. But you know, at that stage, it may be worth um, making more submissions. But equally, it may not be worth making more submissions. And and you know, as you know, Amanda, as you do, as your line of business requires, um, submissions are are you know normally they're robust, they're lengthy, um, they're time consuming, and and they can they can be expensive for the client now you know, to your point, you do a cost benefit analysis at that stage, whether you kind of put in another submission or not. And, and I think even if you catch it at that stage, um, you know, if you, you get, you get clients that are kind of giving you the pinnacle at that stage, there is, there is quite a bit of value to putting together um, a very solid submission at that stage with the view that the auditor may sort of give it a last ditch kind of um, look and, and may you know, take a couple of things off the table at that stage. I think, you know, I think another element to the the rounding out of the audit process is 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 the is the new audit settlement um, regulations that have come out. I don't know if you've engaged in an audit settlement at all, Amanda. I, it's a relatively they've just changed the rules. It's not a new concept, but they've just changed the rules on that. So I had engaged in in settlements prior to the change of the rules, but I haven't okay. engaged in anything since the change. Okay. Okay. So, you know, that's kind of a neat tool as well. Um, and of course, um, you know, the, you know, I, I again, I'm probably a topic for a whole nother podcast in and of itself, but so just very briefly, just, um, you know, it's, it's basically a, a, you know, it's basically a settlement agreement, like anything else that you say, okay, we're going to keep these things on the table. We're going to take these things off the table um, but and the, and the the main piece is of course the waiver of of right to object you know of right to litigate on those issues so that can be a that can be an interesting tool as well um, and can go a long way if there's an ability to do that but of course the settlement has to be principled as always the CRA has to abide by the the relevant legislation the income tax act and the excise tax act and. Um, so you've got to, you know, you, there's sort of none of this sort of meet, meet halfway in the middle and call it a day kind of thing. But but that can be kind of an interesting tool as well, I found. that That's a very good point. So kind of two things arising out of, out of those points is, I guess, one, when, when we're trying to figure out, do we bother making another submission? Because sometimes, as you said, Sophie, these submissions can get to be so cost, cost prohibitive. I usually look at, you know, are we disagreeing on facts or are we disagreeing on the law? 
Because if if we've given all of the documentation that we have to prove our position and CRA just simply doesn't agree with us, I mean, I can keep making submissions until, you know, I'm blue in the face and it's not going to make a difference. Um, but if, if I'm looking at their proposal and going, mm, actually, I think if they had this document, it would be really helpful for them. That's when I'm more inclined to make that submission because I've gotten a bit of pushback later down the road at appeals um, where the appeals officer said, well, why didn't you give that document to the auditor? And mm-hmm. so if we can give it to the auditor, sometimes you can change their mind. And then the the other piece of this, which I think is is great that you've touched on, is the concept of settling disputes with CRA. And you're right. I think we should do another episode on that. But it's just very important for people to understand as a big picture concept, CRA is bound through legislation by what they are and are not allowed to do on settlements. So it's not just that they're being difficult or they're being annoying. They're actually bound by a legislative provision. And they're not allowed to do what we call a compromise settlement, which means, you know, I guess for Sophie and I, if if I owed Sophie $100 and wanted to pay her $50, Sophie could come back to me and say, I'll take 60 and call it a day. And we can't do that with CRA. They have to find a principled basis to a settlement. So they could perhaps take off penalties if they felt that was necessary, or they could agree to a specific expense amount, or they could agree to reduce interest. But they can't agree to take, you know, 50 cents on the dollar unless we're working in a formal, you know, proposal and bankruptcy type situation. So it does make resolving disputes a little bit more a little bit more challenging with CRA. Yeah, I think I think that principled piece is is one that a lot of a lot of taxpayers I don't think recognize that the CRA can't simply just say, okay, let's just split it and and go on a 50-50 basis. Absolutely. And and so this kind of is a good segue into kind of the end of an audit because mm-hmm. we've talked about the different things that happen during an audit. And I mean, arguably at the end of the day, CRA will come back to you with a final position and they're either going to say no changes, in which case there would be no reassessment issued, or they're going to say there is changes. And if there are going to be changes, um, that will result in a document called a notice of reassessment. And I find sometimes there's a bit of confusion among some of my clients because they'll get the final letter from the auditor that says, we're going to make these changes. And they think that's the notice of reassessment. And there's actually a separate document that has the words notice of reassessment directly on it that will come in the mail typically separately from your final letter. And that will show, okay, well, what's the actual tax consequence of the changes that were being made? You may also have um, a document. So the notice of reassessment is sort of the bottom line. And then you might also have a a T7WC, which kind of has more of a breakdown of, of what those amounts look like. I think that one's called what the explanation of the tax changes or something. They have a fancy title for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're right. So that may come as well. And I Mm -hmm. find it confusing because they usually come all at separate times. And the one that we're really trying to track is the notice of reassessment. And we're trying to track it because that is the document that creates the deadline for us Mm -hmm. as to whether or not we're going to move forward with the internal appeals process, which of course is our second topic of today's podcast. Um, So if you get a reassessment and you don't agree with it, there are options available to you. And and one of the options is to use Canada Revenue Agency's 
internal appeals process. So this is like an administrative process. It is uh, dealt with internally. It does not involve the court system at this particular stage. And it involves filing an appeal document that's called a notice of objection. And the reason why we care so much about the date of the notice of reassessment is that when you look in the top right-hand corner of your reassessment document, there will be a date and the date is usually listed as the date of mailing and you have 90 days from that date to file your appeal. And it's possible to get an extension for an additional year, but we like to try to get it in in the initial deadline. So we're always tracking that date um, because regardless of whether something gets lost in the mail or you don't open the envelope for a while, that is still the date that is so critical. I think it's, you know, it's it's tough because 90 days isn't a long time. Um, and I think as especially when you've gone through a lengthy audit, you're, you know, I think people are kind of tired, you know, and they're, they can be defeated at times. And so you think, hey, I just need a break and then I'm going to circle back to this. And that 90 days goes by in the blink of an eye. So I, I yeah, I agree. And, and, and the opportunity to extend um, allows you to apply for an extension one year after the 90 days is up. But of course, there has to be um, a reason for having missed the deadline, typically, you know, health, you know, personal health reasons or, you know, emergencies and things like that. Exactly. So always a little scary to rely upon that um, Mm because it is discretionary and who knows if they'll grant it. Um, If you you decide you're going to be objecting, I guess we've kind of got the two categories of of how you can choose to proceed. And again, this is going to be I'm guessing very diff- different based on our client bases and how we would do things. And so um, a couple of weeks ago, I did a blog post on large corporations. And one of the one of the key things about a large corporation is that there are different requirements when you go to file a notice of objection. And so, Sophie, most of your clients are going to be in that category. And so, therefore, you're not going to be in a position where you can whip off a real basic one-page objection and kind of pretend that nothing happened. Uh, you're going to have to go in and provide prepare a very detailed objection at the front end. For any taxpayers who are not large corporations, um, you do have a bit more of a a flexibility in what you put in your objection document. And so there is an actual form that's available on CRA's site where you can fill in the blanks, say you object, and send it off um, to the appeals division. And you can do that yourself if you wish. I've typically suggested to my clients that it's helpful to usually get their accountant or their lawyer involved, even if they are not a large corporation, because sometimes we can resolve issues on appeal very quickly with the right documentation. And so it's sometimes helpful to put a little bit more in your initial objection and any extra documents that might have been missed in audit, because when someone takes a quick look at it, they might say, oh, well, had we known this, we would never have reassessed and, and we can kind of move on. And I've been able to resolve some in three to four months sometimes with that. So if you're in a time crunch and you're not a large corporation, yes, you can do the quick objection, but sometimes there's still some value in providing more detail. And I'm guessing, Sophie, you're typically doing a very detailed one. Yeah, you know, I think I think you're right. I, I, I would be hard pressed to to see that there's any circumstance where, you know, a very lean notice of objection is better. So in other words, less is more. I don't, you know, I don't see the benefit of that. I think, I, I suppose as I'm thinking through the scenarios, I think that if a, if a taxpayer is just looking to preserve their appeal rights and they're not really sure what direction they want to move, that you could, you could probably put in a very lean 
objection just with the view that um, the timeline doesn't get doesn't get dropped. Um, but other than that, I, I would echo your thoughts. I, I think um, just like an audit, when you make, you know, you sort of do the weighing and balancing and you sort of, um, you know, or, or, or even before you get to the proposal and the audit in advance of that, um, you're, you're trying to make robust submissions. You're trying to give the CRA a, a picture. You're trying to paint them a picture. So instead of the CRA having to make assumptions, which is not a good thing, at the audit stage, you want to paint the picture for them as to what what the story is, and and it, you know it, you're really telling a story. You know this is my business. This is the way we do things, and so um, you know it, 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 these are really really good opportunities to kind of guide guide the auditor at that stage, and then at the appeal stage, of course, it'll be the appeals officer along on this storytelling. And so um, the more robust that you can make your submissions. Um, the more information the CRA has to, to make a determination in your favor, hopefully. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, that objection stage is, is a very powerful part of the process. Again, if you don't, you know, most people don't want to go to the tax court of Canada. I mean, there's no reason why you would want to, to do that if you could actually resolve anything in advance. And so making submissions and filling in holes and gaps at that stage is really, really important. And I guess in terms of the the process at the objection stage, so we talked a bit about the actual notice of objection document, which gets filed, and you can now file that electronically, or you can still go old school, and you can put it in the mail, and you can send it to a tax services office. And then typically about, I'm seeing about 30 to 45 days after that, CRA will send a form letter in the mail saying, hi, we received your objection. We'll get back to you. And they used to say when they get back to you. And then there was that big auditor general report about the delays at appeals. And the last couple letters I've received don't don't give a time frame anymore of when they're going to get back to me. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's typically anywhere from three to 12 months. And it really depends on the complexity of the issue. And so if it's a really simple, um, factual, easy to determine issue, you're going to get someone assigned much quicker than if it's a large legal issue, like an anti-avoidance provision or something like that. And so then you basically sit and you wait um, for someone to be assigned. And when an appeals officer is assigned, they typically phone you and they could be from anywhere in Canada. They won't necessarily be from where you're currently living. And they'll say, hi, I'm your appeals officer. I have reviewed your objection. Do you have anything else to submit? And there's now this opportunity to do a bit more back and forth. But as you said, Sophie, with an entirely new person. So you now get to tell your story to somebody new because appeals is independent from audit. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that's important to note that um, once you launch into the objection stage, so the CRA appeal stage, um, at that stage, it, it also holds your tax payable in abeyance. So collections will hold the amount in abeyance or will basically put a hold on the amount. You And 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 basically, it's just a standstill until the matter is resolved. But but one thing that, that should be noted also is that um, interest con- continues to accrue on that amount. So at the end of the day, if you end up losing, you'll have, you know, the, the downside is that you have a fair amount of interest that has accrued on your amount. So that's just something I think to, to keep in mind. Absolutely. And then I guess the, the two sort of exceptions to that abeyance of collections is if you have GST or HST, um, right. or if you have any, any source deduction debt, because those are 
trust funds of the government. So I I always find sometimes clients get quite excited because they think, oh, I'll file an objection and then they won't have to collect anything, but mm-hmm. they have DST debt. So that doesn't help you. And then also, Sophie, with your clients, I'm guessing because they're large corporations, they're typically having to, under legislation, pay 50% of federal tax up front. So if you're one of those big companies, you don't get the full 100% sort of push off to the side. Uh, you do have to pay the piper a little bit earlier. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, these are fairly large reassessments that you deal with that with the bigger corporations. So yeah, you've got a 50% kind of out, outpay at that stage. And, and that's sort of the cost of doing business, you know, and with these bigger companies, you have, you know, constant audits, constant reassessments and things like that. But I know, you know, I do know that there has been some discussions, um, with finance, just about um, how that can work to ease some of the um, hardship around COVID on the big companies. So, as part of liquidity packages and things like this, is there some is there something that the FISC can do to alleviate some of that pressure? Um, so, I know there's some discussions going on at that level, but I don't I don't think anything has been concluded on at this stage. Well, that's very interesting. I wasn't aware of that. It'll be curious to see where where that goes. Um, so I, I think that the whole collections piece is, is such an important piece to mention. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because it, it can sometimes be the double whammy of getting a reassessment and having collections phoning you. And mm-hmm. sometimes those two things together are just so stressful. So you're you're absolutely right. One of the perks of filing an objection typically under most circumstances is that there is this sort of moratorium on collections. And keep in mind that sometimes your collections officer cannot see the same things that the appeals division can see. And so I'm finding with this new computer system that was put in, it's like collections is only allowed to see one piece. And they often won't be able to see that you filed an objection. And so there's no harm in saying to the collections officer, I filed an objection, would you like a courtesy copy? And that will help to sort of speed up that that moratorium. While while collection, the folks at collections are, you know, that's their job to collect. Um, the nice thing is that they do have some discretion to say, yeah, no, I, you know, yeah, I could benefit from seeing that. And and you can kind of connect on the abeyance piece then directly with collections, which I think is quite helpful. Absolutely. And so so once we get through the appeals process and, and you've gone and you've done your back and forth with the appeals officer, uh, typically, again, it's going to result in some form of final letter and some sort of final decision. And so typically, it's going to be one of three things. Either you're going to win completely and they're going to say, yes, you're absolutely right. And in that particular case, they'll do something called vacate the reassessment which means they're going to overturn what they did and go back to the original. Or they're going to say, no, we still think you're wrong, and they're going to confirm their original reassessment. Or maybe you'll win part of it and lose part of it, and it will result in a, a further reassessment. So you're either going to get um, uh, you know, a reassessment document that looks more like your original assessment or has some slight modifications, or you'll get a document called a notice of confirmation, Uh, which says that literally at the top of the document and indicates that they're going to proceed on the same basis as the original reassessment. So those are the documents you're going to be looking out for. 
So maybe this kind of takes us to our last topic. And and I just was looking here at time, Sophie. It looks like you and I have just been chatting away for about an hour. So maybe we can take okay. about, maybe we can take, I don't know, five or 10 minutes and just very briefly talk about Tax Court of Canada and kind of the jurisdiction and the process. And and I can I can transfer it over to you to have this, some initial comments on this. As I said, you know, once, once the notice of objection process is concluded, um, it really becomes a question of um, what what you what the taxpayer wants to do. If if the taxpayer wants to continue to fight, um, then there is the option to go into the court process. So um, what you would do the practical sort of the the initiating document is called a notice of appeal, and you know it can be a bit confusing at times because. Uh, with the CRA appeals process, because I think sometimes it can, the CRA appeals process can be confused with the tax court appeals process. So I think just a note to distinguish between those two, the CRA appeals process has to do with the internal administrative appeal process. And then the tax court of Canada um, sort of pushes you into the court system. So the initiating document is what's called a notice of appeal. Um, and you can, f- and what that what that looks like in essence, um, in the perfect world, it would be somewhat of a mirror document to the notice of objection. So it would have an outline of facts, and then it would have an outline of uh, the reasons for appeal. Um, and those are those are a fairly the reasons for appeal are a fairly lean version of the argument in essence that you're making. Um, and then once the Tax Court of Canada appeal process is launched, um, your file gets transferred to the Department of Justice. So a Department of Justice lawyer gets assigned to it. So this is the federal government's office um, gets assigned to it. And um, Crown Counsel will then be um, the point of contact for the CRA. So Crown Counsel is counsel. The Department of Justice is counsel to the CRA. The flip side of that is that the CRA is is the is the Department of Justice client. So um, all of my communications practically will be between the Department of Justice and myself. And the nice thing about the Tax Court of Canada appeal process, if you've made it that far, um, is that then you're actually dealing with legal counsel. And so when it comes to if there are issues, if there are substantive issues of law, then you can kind of have those conversations with the Department of Justice. And of course, in the tax dispute resolution process, this will be the first time that you're actually dealing with legal counsel. And so there are some benefits to that as well. So when I say it's a bit of a gut check at the end of the um, notice of appeal process, sometimes we as counsel say, you know what, there's no point in objecting to this again. Let's just go to the Tax Court of Canada and then we'll deal with the Department of Justice. And sometimes that's just a a strategic decision that's made. And so um, the Department of Justice then uh, will file a a reply and then it will take on the life of a regular um, civil litigation file. So you've got um, the exchange of documents, you've got the examination for discovery, um, and then you've got the trial. And um, often that process from the notice of appeal to trial, it's, it's quite long. Um, and, and it can go anywhere from probably a year to 10 years, depending on the complexity of issues um, and the size of the issues. And so it really becomes a question of whether, you know, whether the taxpayer wants to fight the fight, if they've got the resources to fight, because of course, uh, there's no guarantee to win at the end of it. So 
as legal counsel, um, you know, we, we can give sort of an estimation of what the likelihood of success is. Um, and of course, we can try and, you know, draw on our past experience in respect of that. But that, that it kind of comes down to a bit of a gamble because there's, you, you never have control over what a judge will or will not say. So I think, you know, in the interest of time, I, I don't mean to rush through this part of it, but um, but that's kind of generally the landscape of the tax court of Canada. And of course, um, there are appeal rights from there as well. So if if you lose at the tax court of Canada, then you do have the right to appeal to the federal court of appeal on any um, error of law or palpable and overriding error of fact. Um and then once the federal court of appeal has has decided, then of course the next level is the Supreme Court of Canada, which um, is unto itself its own uh, set of procedures, as, as you're aware, Amanda. So um, that's it's very infrequent that we'll we'll apply for leave to the Supreme Court of Canada. But um, but yeah, that's kind of the landscape of of tax litigation on the um, once you pass the CRA appeal stage. That was a really great summary, Sophie. That was very oh. like succinct. I liked oh, that. Good. That was great. <laughs> yeah, I think the key with the Tax Court of Canada is, of course, that's a federal court. And so, you know, they they are a traveling court, except for the current situation in, in the pandemic. But they will typically come to you, which makes them quite unique and, and makes it quite nice. Because if you're not living in Toronto or Ottawa, but you have a tax court appeal, you can request that the court come to your city to host that appeal there so that you can have your hearing in person um, at your actual location, uh, which makes it makes it quite unique. So that is kind of a cool process. I, I think that's a great overview of the tax court proceedings. And, and you're right, it really does depend on that gut check. How much is at issue? What are the issues that are actually outstanding? Are they something that we think we can move forward on? And of course, there's always other opportunities for settlement through the tax court rules as well. So it is possible to still resolve your appeal before you get all the way to the hearing stage. And the tax court has certainly implemented a lot of new procedures and options to try to encourage parties down that route. So the option for settlement is still there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, the, again, dealing with legal counsel for the CRA, you'll be able to have some um, some discussions on some of the legal issues um, in a way that you perhaps would not have with the CRA. And, and that can oftentimes encourage discussions of settlement and, and certainly the option is there. And, and typically, you know, after document disclosure and after questioning occurs, um, there's more, as the timeline moves forward, there's more opportunity as more facts are uncovered and things like that. And, and, and there's, you know, there's quite a bit of, you know, sort of realism in that process in the sense that the CRA will certainly, um, you know, they aren't certainly encouraged to settle when it when it makes sense to do so. So that's that that happens quite a bit in our world. Well, Sophie, thank you so much. I'm really proud of us because we did get through an awful lot in a little over an hour. Yeah, so, no, that was wonderful. I, I think I, I think we we could probably have taken a session on each one of the, the topics. So that was well done. Well done on the moderation as well. We we should clap ourselves on the back. I, I'm going to have to have you back on again because I think there's so many different issues that we could really break down in a lot more detail. And, and I do really, really appreciate your time today. So thank you so much for coming on. Always my pleasure, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that is all we have time for today. Hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about our amazing guest today. Thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my weekly blog, 
the Tax Chick blog. If you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice. 